Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. morning. It is Monday, the 23rd of May, 2022. And I just want to start with the good. Good morning. Good. Good morning. All good. Yep. That's, uh, that's where we're, that's where we're leading off today. Good morning. What makes it good? It's not what makes it good. It's who makes it good. Good morning. God is the one who declares it good. God's the one who observes all things are good. Now, I recognize here that I'm going back to Genesis chapter 1, like the genuinely good old days, to declare to you that it's all good. Um, But track with me here for just a moment. I know it's it's really early, Um, but trust me when I tell you, God observed his creation and declared it good. So when we say good morning, that's snuggled in there. Like what, every time you hear me say good morning, I want you to recall to yourself that what I am declaring unto you is God's declaration upon his observation of what he has made. He looked upon it and he said, good, it's good. It's all good. And some of it, yeah, those people, that people part, that's very good. I'm, of course, talking here about Genesis chapter 1. So where in the word are you today? I am in the opening verses of the Bible. In Genesis 1-4, after God spoke light into existence, he's like, that's good. In verse 10 of Genesis chapter 1, after separating the water from the land, he looked at it and he's like, that's good. After creating plant life, vegetation, which, depending on where you live, um, it is some shade of green right now. In some places, there's so many shades of green. I mean, if you just spent if you just spent your day in awe over the shades of green, that would give God His glory today, because that's what God was doing in Genesis one twelve. He's looking at all those shades of green and all those flowering plants and uh, all the varieties of plant life, and He looked at it and He's like, "That's good." Genesis 1.18, he puts in place this system of lighting the earth and separating night from day, and he's like, yeah, that is good. Genesis 1.21, after creating creatures to populate the water and the air, the birds and the fishes, he looks at them and he's like, that is good. Genesis 1.25, populates the land with animals and insects. Okay, I just confess to you the insect part. I'm like, oh, really? But God says, yep, mm-hmm. that's good. And then finally, after creating this capstone of creation, we call humanity, human beings made in his image, male and female, he created them. I'm, of course, in Genesis 1, 26 to 30 here. God looks at all that he had made 
and especially upon this man and this woman, this capstone of creation. And he doesn't just say that it's good. He says it's very good. So maybe I should say to you, very good morning. Not just good morning to you, but very good morning, fellow image bearer of the living God. You are seen and you are known. You are created in the image of God himself. And that is very good. It's interesting to me that nowhere in the Bible is the word good actually like defined. Well, it is defined. It's defined by God in these opening verses where, do, where God declares that what he has made is good and that people, human beings, male and female created in his image, very good. What God has said is very good and good, we ought render no different judgment about. And so as you are considering yourself and others today, I want you to see yourself the way God sees you and say into that mirror this morning, very good morning, image bearer of the living God. So very good morning to you. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen, and we'll be right back. If you're like me, sometimes, you know, Monday morning starts and not everything is already going as you had planned for the week. So Paul Perot produces this program and he is so diligent at planning out, you know, who's going to join us and what we're going to talk about. And then, you know, the world interrupts. And so um, he has to he has to shuffle quickly. Um, it's more than like the Texas two-step. I don't know what sort of like fast-stepping dance there is out there, but Paul Perot has been doing the fast-stepping dance. I'm a Minnesotan, I, and I don't dance. We don't fast-step, you know. <laughs> we well, don't dance. Th- there's some people up this way who do do polka. I don't polka. So, yeah. What do you do, Paul, that's a fast, like, it's a, that I could be like, you know. Also, in my family, we have that you can't see it, so this is really, really tough to imagine. But we put our hands together and we rub them so fast okay. together. I don't, I know you can't see that, but yeah, so we can hear that's it our, and... that's like the, that's like the Fowler thing that we do when we get super duper excited about something and need need to move really fast. What what is your thing? Ah. Uh. I don't know. When we rub our hands together, that's because our hands are cold. You're cold. I know. <laughs> exactly. I know. I'm sure that's the. I'm sure that's where it. this came from. It. Yeah. All right. So, um, so uh, we we had a plan for today, and the plan is that the plan has changed. And so you and I are just going to spend a little time together. And so I have um, before me right now my notes on the San Francisco Archbishop denying uh, Nancy Pelosi communion due to her stance on abortion. So let me read you in on this, and then let's talk about it. Um, So the San Francisco Archbishop, Salvatore Cordelione, has announced that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, that's the House of Representatives, um, Nancy Pelosi is barred from receiving Holy Communion because of her not just pro-abortion stance, but her pro-abortion advocacy and her unwillingness to submit to the discipline of the church of which she claims to be a part. So um, this marks an escalation in a decades-long tension between the Roman Catholic Church and 
uh, members of the Democratic Party who are politicians who publicly advocate for abortion in the United States of America. So Coeur d'Alene has written to the California um, uh, to well to Nancy Pelosi, who is a Democrat who represents uh, the district in California over which um, Salvatore Coeur d'Alene is the archbishop. So San Francisco. And he has informed her that she should not present herself for Holy Communion at Mass um, and that priests under his jurisdiction will not distribute communion to her if she does present herself. Now, you say to yourself, I I just don't think this is the way that Christians are supposed to do things out in public, making public declarations. So let's be clear that the archbishop has disclosed there has been a process through which the church has sought to bring this particular member back into compliance with the church's teaching. So that's called church discipline. If you've ever experienced it, if you've ever been a part of it, this is functionally how churches bring errant members back into um, the fold. Like, right, those who have wandered astray, this is how we bring them back. We go to them, we say, this is an area of your life um, that you've been quite public about that is out of alignment with who we are and what we claim and what we understand God's way to be from his word. Um, And so, you know, this is an area in which we are inviting you to repent. It's called church discipline. Um, It's it's one of like the three legs of the church. Uh, If you think about the the word being rightly handled or rightly proclaimed, the sacraments being rightly administered, and then church discipline um, also being rightly administered. Those are like the three legs of the institutional church. And rightly administered discipline is a problem in the church today uh, because the church in many people's lives lacks authority. Well, authority is something that the Roman Catholic Church should have on its side. Uh, And so we're going to pause here and then I'm going to pick this conversation back up with you in just a moment as we unpack this very public conversation about a very, very personal question. And that is your access to grace. Because in Roman Catholicism, if you're barred from receiving communion, if you're being barred from even presenting yourself for Mass, then according to Catholic doctrine, you're barred from grace. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. So speak now. Okay, so we are picking up where we left off in the conversation here. So Nancy Pelosi has um, been barred from presenting herself for the sacrament of Holy Communion in the Roman Catholic Church by her presiding Archbishop, Salvatore Cordelione, in San Francisco. Um, And so I want to talk for a a minute about church discipline. Church discipline is not designed to be punitive. It's designed to be restorative. Let's keep that in mind. The goal of discipline is always redemption. First Corinthians chapter five is a good place to look here in terms of church discipline um, in the Bible. But the storyline here is complicated. Um, And part of the storyline is complicated because, um, of the particular expression of the church known as Catholicism. And so for those of you, including myself, who are not Roman Catholics, I I thought that, you know, because this is happening very publicly and it's happening to a very public individual, the Speaker of the House, and because our president is also 
not only Roman Catholic, but also a Democrat and holds the same position on abortion um, expressed and espoused by the Speaker of the House, whose position on abortion is what is um, uh, resulting in her being barred from communion. So all of that is relevant, and that's why we're talking about it today. So in Roman Catholic theology, as I understand it, um, the issue is is deep and complicated, not only because of what how they understand Holy Communion and Mass to actually be a means of grace. It is actually how you get God's grace. Um, but because there's a hierarchy in Roman Catholicism that doesn't exist in many other expressions um, of, of the Christian church. And so the hierarchical, episcopal, or magisterium is at issue here. There's an, a, a structure of authority in Roman Catholicism that's important. So the term magisterium is based on a Latin word for teacher, the magister, um, and it refers to the teaching authority which Christ has given to the church, right? It also refers to the authority itself and those who exercise it. So the magisterium is not just those guys in those uh, robes and hats, right? It's not just the priests and the bishops and the cardinals and the pope. It, it is the teaching itself. The authority itself is, is the magisterium in Roman Catholicism. So it refers to the authority itself, those who exercise the authority, so those individuals, those people. And then the term also refers to the body of the teachings so that are uh, you know, proclaimed as authoritative. So when we're talking about the authority of the Roman Catholic Church in relationship to one of its members, in this case, Nancy Pelosi, we're talking about her unwillingness to submit to um, the teaching of the scriptures themselves. So the, the teaching itself, the teachers in her church who have authority, these uh, these in this case, the Archbishop of San Francisco. But then the teaching of the Catholic Church, as it is written down in, uh, in, in all of its ways and forms. And, and so the usage would certainly include the teaching of the Catholic Church on the sanctity of human life, human life from conception to natural death. So that is what, what is at issue. Now, it's important to note, I think, that Nancy Pelosi considers herself a devout Catholic. That's the way she talks about um, herself and her her faith. Um, so when she uses that term, what does she mean? What does the word devout even mean? Well, at the root of the word devout is devotion. And if you are devout, then you have a, a total devotion to a cause or a commitment, or in this case, a religious expression. When she says she's a devout Catholic, she's saying, I am totally devoted to the Roman Catholic expression of the Christian faith. And yet, is she? Because in Roman Catholicism, submission to the authority of the magisterium um, and the upholding of things as simple as the sanctity of life would seem to be indicators of devotion. So is she more devoted to the sanctity of human life as taught by the church, which she says she is devoted to, a, a devout a person, an individual who is devoutly expressing Catholicism, or, or when this is publicly tested, is she going to prove to be more devoted to abortion? 
so I, I think that's what this is going to come down to. Is she a more devout adherent to the cultural religion of abortion in America or a devout adherent of the Catholic faith? Um, because devout for Nancy Pelosi, it, it cannot mean how others are using the term. It cannot mean to holding to the nearly universal Catholic teaching and the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church as expressed and defended by the bishop of her church. Um, Because he said, I mean, out loud and in public, this goes back to August 2021 when this public exchange started. He said a devout Catholic cannot and would not support abortion. Full stop. That's it. At issue for Nancy Pelosi is what is, I think, at issue for many, many people in the culture and the cultural debates of the day. Do I care what the Bible says? And then having discovered what the Bible says, do I actually submit to it? Do I let uh, do I cooperate with the Holy Spirit actively at work in my life to bring me into actual conformity with the revealed will of God through the word of God? And then, in turn, do I advocate for the same in the culture of which I am a part? Do I recognize that I am a culture cultivator, that I am a regent of God, an ambassador of the king and the kingdom, and that it's my role and responsibility in the culture to always advance the truth and, um, and advance the qualities that God has expressed as aligned with his, with his will? Like, am I going to influence the culture of which I am a part to follow God's revealed good plan in this particular matter? Or am I going to say, well, this is good for the church. This is good for Christians. But let the world go to hell in a handbasket. Like like that. Yeah. Um, so one conversation that we might have here is who gets to decide who is devout. And I would say the Roman Catholic Church gets to decide uh, if Roman Catholics are devout. Another conversation that we might have is what do we expect of um, of people in the political sphere in terms of how much of their private faith they bring to to bear on public policy? Because it matters right now, um, largely because we have a a person in the position of the presidency of the United States who claims to be a Roman Catholic, presents himself every single week for mass, for Holy Communion, and happens to live in a judicatory of the um of the Roman Catholic Church, where his bishop has said, uh, this is Wilton Gregory of Washington, D.C., that he will not deny communion to the president in uh, within his jurisdiction, even though the president of the United States holds the same position that Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, um, holds as well. The Archbishop of San Francisco, where Nancy Pelosi legally resides, has said that, that she will be denied communion in his jurisdiction. Uh, notably, <clears throat> As you look at what's happening in the United States of America and the decision of the Supreme Court justices in relationship to the Dobbs case, several of the Supreme Court justices are Roman Catholic, by the way, which I find interesting in the context of this particular conversation. But nonetheless, um, the decision they're really making is, is abortion access guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States of America and therefore must be guaranteed in every single one of uh, America's judicatories, every state in the nation and province and, you know, all the other things that are connected to us. Or is this a matter of states' rights? Is this something that should be decided by the people who reside in a particular judicatory, in this case, states? And are you noting that in Roman Catholicism, even though the Pope has said 
Um, and the teachings of the church say, without question, that life is to be protected from conception to natural death, that there are still bishops within the Roman Catholic Church who are allowing for sort of leniency in in terms of access to mass, access to communion, um, in their, uh, you know, in their purview of authority, which is basically saying in, in Roman Catholicism on this issue, states' rights up is upheld. I mean, they're not states, but they're... Uh, they're judicatories within Roman Catholicism. It's just very curious to me that um, this that there's this reflection of what's happening in the church in the world, or maybe what's happening in the world is being now reflected in the church. There you go. Those are some thoughts, opening thoughts this morning. All right, I don't have time for any other topics. We got to jump to our next conversation. Daniel Bennett is up next. He and I are going to talk about how politics has poisoned the evangelical church. We're also going to talk about the Department of Homeland Security disinformation panel, which is uh, no more. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining us again today, Daniel Bennett from J- John Brown. Oh, you're oh, wait, getting ahead no. of yourself, Beth. I'm so. He's not joining us for about five minutes. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. You know, I get kind of excited. And um, and there's people texting on the text line, and I'm trying to answer them. And I am looking at, you know, it's Monday morning. Grace, people. Grace. (laughs) Extend extend a little grace. And me dancing there, though, for a moment. That's all I can say. All right. Well, you know what? Before um, before he joins us, let me then cover this because I had this in my notes for this morning and I don't know where else I'm going to work it in. So here you go. Truth is on trial. Um, Hillary Clinton uh, apparently did approve the release of the Steele dossier to the media. Her former campaign manager, Robbie Mook, um, has admitted uh, during a trial he testified that uh, Hillary Clinton herself approved the campaign proposal to leak the back channel uh, document known as the uh, Steele dossier to the media. So that's this ongoing thing. Um, it's actually a trial in relationship um, to uh, um, to Sussman, who is an attorney for the Clinton campaign. It's a, it's a complicated storyline. I don't I uh, it, it's hard to get into and pull all the threads. Here's what I would like to say. Um, under oath, um, you can't you can't lie. Like, right, that is when you're under oath, you have raised your hand and you have sworn to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Uh, Many people have also then added, so help me God, right? Because truth is a matter of godliness and God cares about the truth. God cares a lot about the truth. So you and I, as believers in God and people who follow the one who is the way and the truth and the life, we speak the truth. You know, no matter what, we do so in love, but we speak the truth. We tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us God. Um, but we live in a culture where, you know, shades of gray and lying are quite prevalent and relied upon fairly frequently. But one area where you cannot rely upon lying is with the FBI. It's actually against the law of the land to lie to the FBI. It's called making false statements. It sounds a whole lot like um, the commandment in the Bible, you know, where it says you shall not bear false witness. That's what we're talking about here. So when you are watching and listening to the uh, the headlines related to sussing out the truth in uh, in what actually happened 
um, in the lead up to the 2016 rollback time here uh, election for the president of the United States of America. So this was the campaign uh, season during which Hillary Clinton was the Democrat candidate and uh, Donald Trump was the Republican candidate. And in the lead up to that, there was a lot of misinformation and even disinformation out there. But different people saw the truth differently in relationship to those things. Well, now, you know, the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth is coming out like right. The light eventually shines. The truth is eventually known. Um, and then we have to learn to live with it. Right. Here is the interesting note, I think, in all of the ways that we seek to apply the mind of Christ to the issues of the day, truth matters. Truth matters to Jesus. If you could keep that in front of you today, that truth matters to Jesus, whether or not it ends up being the law of the land. In this case, it's the law of the land. You cannot, you shall not lie to the FBI. You shall not make false statements to the FBI. And if you do, you're in big, bad trouble in the United States of America. Um, but I would apply this to other things. Places where you know something to be the truth, commit to it. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. Yes. So help us, God. All right. Now, Daniel Bennett is coming up next. We'll be right back. All right, now Daniel Bennett is here, who I announced as president a few moments ago. He's actually here now, John Brown University Uneasy Citizenship blog. It's summertime. Dr. Bennett, welcome back. Thank you. You announced me early? It's Monday morning, and uh, there was a little dancing um, because our first scheduled guest was not able to join us. And so sometimes, sometimes that means I get kind of excited and I get moving at a pace and... And then I imagine that my next person is coming faster than they are. So there you go. I, but we're glad, we're super glad you're here you now. Have, I'm glad. <laughs> All right. Um, you and I have both read. It's a very long piece in The Atlantic. It is posted at theatlantic.com. It's by Tim Alberta. How politics poisoned the evangelical church. The movement spent 40 years at war with secular America. Now it's at war with itself. We don't have time to unpack every point of this, but I'm wondering if you could highlight some things that stood out to you. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it will be familiar to your readers who have been, you know, following the fishers uh, or at least the, uh, the, you know, support for evangelical or support from evangelicals for, say, Donald Trump or something like that. Some of that's in there, response to the COVID vaccines, lockdowns, et cetera. I think the most interesting thing, and other people have written about this, Tim isn't unique in this respect, but it was so in-depth and thorough. I think the most interesting piece for me was just highlighting the fissures uh, that we see within elements of the church. And there was a section where he's comparing two pastors, for example. You know, one uh, pastors a church really similar to the kind that I attend, uh, a more you know, conservative, at least, you know, theologically, and uh, I guess, uh, in terms of the trappings of the church. And then the other church, which tended to be more, I guess, open to wading into politics and calling out what it sees as harmful, and uh, maybe even demonic politics in our in our world today, uh, tends to come from more charismatic uh, background and tradition. So I think when we're when we're talking about the 
the main differences within evangelicalism in 2022, that's a really important one. Uh, it's not just denominations. It's is it charismatic or non-charismatic? And as someone who doesn't grow up in that in that charismatic community, it's really insightful to to hear maybe what might be going on in that world, especially you know in Siloam Springs. There's a large presence of charismatic churches. And so, and again, I don't, I don't attend those, but it really is insightful to hear what's happening and uh, kind of how we can be praying for and encouraging our brothers and sisters across the spectrum. One of the things that, you know, it reminded me of is that there's just a lot going on inside of churches that I'm not in, mm. right? There, there's a lot going on inside um worship services and congregational expressions that, uh, you know, of which I'm not a part. And even other congregations that might be a part of the same denomination that, you know, the church where I worship, you know, is in um, my experience and what is proclaimed from the pulpit, you know, where I'm sitting is very, very different. The songs that are being sung are different the activities that are being um, advocated are different. Um, and I think we all tend to assume that everyone is having the same experience we're having in whatever church we're worshiping in. Yeah, I mean, it does speak to the diversity of the body. I mean, obviously, we could talk about the American church versus the church throughout the rest of the world. Uh, but even within the United States, obviously, uh, there's a great deal of diversity regionally, uh, obviously theologically and in terms of traditions. Um, one of the pushback you get to articles like this is often, well, I don't know anyone who says that, or I've never met a pastor who does this, or I've never met a member of my congregation who believes it, or who believes that. That may be true, but it's the same type of problem when you say, well, I don't know anyone who voted for this candidate, or I don't, I don't know anyone who voted for that candidate. Um, so it really does, uh, it really does, uh, highlight the the diversity of the body, and it does shine a light on what might be happening across the the spectrum. Yeah, and how siloed we might be. Because if you mm -hmm. if you say to yourself, you know, I don't know anybody that's worshiping in a church where these things are being proclaimed, um, or I don't know um, anybody who holds those views, um, you know, you might have to get out a little more, or you might have to stop yep. assuming things yep. about the people you do know. Um, I uh, it, it, when you take time. And you and you bother to ask people what their view on something is or how they think about something. It is stunning. I mean, I am stunned. Just just use the word ivermectin in a conversation and mm. see what happens. Just use a word. No, I think that's that's a really helpful corrective. Uh, and, and honestly, this is a place for reflection and, and repentance in my own life. You know, teaching at a at an evangelical Christian university, that setting where we are around you know, highly educated, my colleagues, highly educated, you know, middle class, at least upper middle class students come from upper middle class or upper class families. Uh, those backgrounds that we have are going to be very, very different than other people mm -hmm. in our community necessarily. And so it is a check. And I, like you said, just opening up, door, you love conversations, right? Mm -hmm. Opening up those conversations in different contexts can be absolutely eye-opening and illuminating. I think it's showing, the, the Alberta article specifically shows that as a body, and the church is one body, I think we have a lot of work to do, and I'm including myself in this, obviously, to better understand and relate to and empathize with our brothers and sisters 
who don't worship the way that we do, who don't attend the churches that we do. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> for those of you listening right now, and you thought that I was either speaking in tongues or um, offering some incantation, um, Ivermectin, uh, see, the fact that you don't know what it is and you had to ask me, suggest to me, you're not in the conversations where the Ivermectin oh. crowd is engaged. So thank you for asking. Um, Ivermectin uh, is a uh, it, it is a drug. It is a therapeutic um, and I will leave it at that. Some people believe it is for um, one particular use related to COVID. Others think it is not rightly used in that way. Uh, and I will just leave that right there and you can do your own research um, and have your own conversations. Yeah. And what do you something got for really, me, Daniel? Something, something really funny about that. Uh, I, I usually attend, I usually go to a, a store to pick up our chicken feed. It's called Atwoods here in Northwest Arkansas. And today even, it's been months since the ivermectin idea has been proposed as a possible you know, solution to COVID. They're still rationing how much ivermectin they sell. Uh, you can only buy so much. And this is obviously the ivermectin that's meant for livestock, not the deworming drug for people. Uh, and it's, you know, May of 2022, and we're still rationing it here in northwest Arkansas. So that tells you a little something. Okay, speaking of rationing, how's the baby formula, formula situation where you live? Do you have any idea? Are you in that I don't, I mean, age group at all? We're not in the age group anymore, thankfully. I know that uh, we would have had a really tough time with a couple of our kids uh, if we had been in that age group. We were just walking through the store the other day, actually, my wife and I. It was unusual that we were both walking through the store together. Usually it's just one of us. Um, but we were together walking through. We walked past the formula section and there were quite a number of, well, this just shows the difference between my wife and me. I observed, oh, there's a decent amount of formula here. And my wife said, well, that's all for uh, older babies. There was mm -hmm. none there for infants. Um, so, uh, it, it actually, no, I take that back. There were a few packages there, but it was the most expensive variety, the name brand variety. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, there was a void on the shelf. So definitely a space if you're, if listeners are able to assist in any way, I know that there's a lot of families who are concerned and, and maybe even scared about this. Yeah, apparently infant formula is um, different than the formula yeah. that you feed to older babies. One of my um, one one of my notes in uh, this morning just says, "In all of this, the babies keep coming, ten thousand two hundred and sixty-seven of them on average every day." Like, right? Beautiful. So this is a new, right? So that's beautiful and something to celebrate in the midst of all of this in a in a culture where we just seem to chronically talk about abortion. There's 10,267 babies being born in America every single day. That's 3.6 million babies every single year. So um, it may not seem like a state of emergency where you live, but um, mm. for those 3.6 million families um, this year, it, this is a big deal. Um, and so there Absolutely. you go. Uh, that's, my working, that's my working that one topic in. All right, yeah. um, Daniel, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, I want to talk about disinformation, which is real. And I want to talk about the Department of Homeland Security unsuccessfully uh, forming and then scaling back down a disinformation panel. So I want to talk about disinformation and the reality of it and the challenge we face and then how that has been complicated by the DHS's failure to do this in a way that was in any way legit. All right, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Daniel Bennett is my conversation partner from John Brown University and the Uneasy Citizenship blog. We'll be right back. Give me faith, life, Daniel 
Continuing our conversation with Daniel Bennett from John Brown University. Uh, he writes at the Uneasy Citizenship blog. He's actually working on a book by that same title, which we anticipate um, with enthusiasm. All right, Daniel, disinformation. I want to talk about disinformation, what it is and why we should be concerned about it. And then, or maybe we start with the Department of Homeland Security spun up and then very quickly spun back down uh, a disinformation panel. So can you help us understand the importance of the subject and why we should be concerned about it, but then also this mess that was made of it by DHS? Sure. Okay. So we've probably... I know that you've talked about misinformation before. This is information that uh, may be false or may be taken out of context, uh, you know, a selectively edited clip or a quotation that's not quite true to the source. Uh, and misinformation often makes it hard to evaluate what's true and accurate in our political or social discourse. Disinformation is different in the sense that it's created or crafted specifically to um, confuse or uh, affect certain conversations. And disinformation often comes from more official or coordinated actions from certain actors. So disinformation is demonstrably, uh, demonstrably false, no kernel of truth in it whatsoever. Historically, by the way, it's come from uh, not only official sources, but also foreign sources. So the Russian government, for example, has a pretty large propaganda disinformation uh, effort underway to uh, meddle or disrupt the domestic conversations or affairs of other governments, including the United States, right? I mean, if you've been on Facebook, and I'm, there's been tons and tons of reports about this that talks about disinformation on Facebook. This is different than just saying, oh, look at this quote from the president, um, where it's selectively out of context. Disinformation is demonstrably false, promoted by bad actors. Um, so that's the definition. And I'll let you describe a little bit about DHS. But fundamentally, uh, the government, the, the, what happened with the DHS establishing this panel was a, the essentially it was a conclusion to a pretty important question: How do we counter and prevent disinformation uh, from affecting our our society? All right. So um, recognizing that the Department of Homeland Security has um, before it the challenge of intercepting and then um, uh, speaking truth into situations where disinformation is being actively pumped into the American system. So let's, uh, let's talk about all of the ways that might come, mostly through social media, but also increasingly through the media who mm -hmm. don't bother to do their due diligence in relationship to social media. So some bad actor somewhere intentionally produces completely false information, I mean, totally false stories, and pushes them out and they gain some traction because there are actually thousands or millions of false accounts that then that then uh, advance that material. And once it's in the system and it gets enough um, re reposts or likes or whatever, um, then the mainstream media in, you know, picks up because it's trending somewhere. Oh, this is trending in some social media area. And so therefore, this is a story people are going to want to know about, even though the reason that it's trending is because there's a bunch of fake accounts that have reproduced it. And it just then it pumps it into the the mainstream media or more mainstream media. And so I think people need to recognize that, that there is a 
there is a process through which information gets in front of us and and because it starts in uh, you know somebody intentionally producing false material because they want us to believe something um it, it then is reproduced and then it's really hard to say okay but i thought i heard that on a legitimate mm-hmm. site mm-hmm. yeah and so like you were saying this is this is a convoluted and complicated process uh when you take something that emerges on social media, uh, does get what looks to be legitimate traction. If you're a journalist or if you're a reporter, and a lot of this has to do with a 24-hour news cycle, just how short our country's attention span is when it comes to news, because we're always looking for the next big thing. Uh, news sources and news outlets will often just try to pick up whatever is trending or whatever is the hot conversation without the requisite due diligence. Uh, And this happens on both the left and the right, looking for clicks, looking for views, trying to get the one up on their media competitors. And the worst case scenario, if it's wrong, the the news cycle is so short that people forget within a few days, right? So that's the worst case scenario, uh, at least from their perspective. Um, So this board that was supposedly established by the government or that was planning to be established and look into this possible solutions. You know, this is a real concern for American political discourse and the, and the, you know, certainly the legitimacy of our uh, political process, but the way in which they set this up, I think just shows how, uh, how difficult it can be, or rather the unforced errors that often occur within bureaucracy to try to rush a program through without thinking through the responses to the program, uh, especially from people who are already fundamentally distrustful of the government. This is almost a case study of that. Oh, absolutely. No, absolutely. I mean, already on my text line, which, by the way, you guys can text me anytime during the show, 877-933-2484. You know, already... um, you know, someone laughing at the fact that we're even talking about this because, after all, uh, you know, these are let's see, information from the government. Bah ha 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 ha. Yeah, exactly. Uh, right, yeah. and then and then their litany of reasons that they don't, they already don't trust the government to provide accurate information. This is a problem because we live together in community in this culture, and yep. discerning truth in the midst of this is critical. It's critical. Yeah, I think discernment is something that gets thrown around a lot as a term. Uh, I think we, as the church and as individual believers and a community of believers, and again, I'm always including myself in this, uh, need to do a lot better in terms of unpacking what discernment actually means in practice. Because it's one thing to just look, well, it's in Scripture. What does it mean in practice? What does it mean for us as believers engaging with an increasingly complicated media landscape where news is just, you know, flowing and, and coming at us faster and faster. Uh, so discernment matters. This gets back to the Alberta piece from the Atlantic. Discernment matters a lot. Uh, but the solution was certainly not a panel set up by the government, especially one with so many overtly political or politicized connections. That's just not going to get the job done for so many people who are fundamentally just inherently skeptical about government. I I seem to be thinking here about there's this logical fallacy, one of those logical fallacies where I'm most inclined to believe the worst about somebody with whom I disagree about a range of things. And Mm -hmm. so my willingness to believe something that is posted by them or about them 
um, even if it doesn't line up with anything else I know to be true. Like I'm more inclined to believe that thing because it's yep. negative about them or toward them. Like that's a problem. Like we, we have, we had yep. a lot of layers of issue here. Well, and so, so I've mentioned him before, but Samuel James is writing a book about culture and technology in the church. Uh, he's a he's a writer and, and a book editor, I think, at uh, one of the presses, I think InterVarsity, I believe. Anyway, he had a term. I don't know if he created it, but he certainly used he's used it really well. Negative epistemology, where mm. we become really con- or, uh, comfortable as a heuristic, as a shortcut, looking at people with whom we have generally disagreed. And then dismissing anything that they say because of our past disagreements with them. So that's the flip side to what you were just saying. So all right, word of really, the day, word of the day yeah. is going to be heuristic. Yeah, <laughs> so it's a it's a it's a, a cognitive shortcut that we use to go about our daily lives. And this is in decision making. It's just it's in the way that we function, right? You don't need to always process new things uh, because mm. we've had a ton of experience doing things before. So anyway, uh, negative epistemology or negative uh, epistemology, uh, distrusting someone's information because we've disagreed with them previously. Um, it comes, you know, it's dismissive, right? Say, well, I can, in some sense, that's a helpful shortcut, but in other ways it, it loses and misses possible good information and perspectives. Mm, so good. So helpful. All right, Daniel, as always, thank you so much. Um, Blessings on the work you are currently pursuing on your book. We love talking with you. That is uh, Daniel Bennett. You can find him at John Brown University and the Uneasy Citizenship blog. Um, All right, um, I'm running it to the end because I ran over the last little break, but we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Um, Circling back very briefly to the topic of the baby formula shortage. Um, I want you to be helpful, as helpful as you can be on this front. I don't know exactly what that's going to mean for you in your own community and with the people who you love and serve. Let's be praying for um, folks that are facing this shortage. Let's be actively working for provision or toward provision. And let's recognize that babies keep coming. And that is absolutely worthy of our celebration. Babies keep coming. 10,267 of them every day in America. So let's be praying for those uh, 10,000 families today, those new lives, um, and let's be celebrating life today. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.